Happy New Year. I want to quickly thank uh, Dave Hoskins for for me last Sunday. I appreciate that so much. You want to turn in your Bibles to the letter of Second Peter. Second Peter immediately follows First Peter, believe it or not. <laughs> it's the next letter. God willing, this will be our first full year together. 2019. We've been here just over six months, my family and I. Um, still so thankful and so thrilled uh, to be here, but 2019 is our first whole year that we have, and I, the adversary will not rest this coming year. He won't. We want to be vigilant. Just before Advent and the Christmas season, we finished our journey through First Peter the Apostle's letter to the elect exiles in Asia Minor who were beginning to feel the weight of following Jesus in a world where not only our flesh wages war against our souls, but will never be our home, and in which we will never truly fit or be welcomed. And his charge was to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing the kind of good that resulted from having our hope set fully on Christ with none of it set on anything or anyone in this world, because doing so would bring constant and increasing suffering, right? This was the first part of a series through these three little books to give hope for pilgrims in this world. And so First Peter established our identity as suffering and sojourning exiles, but Peter wrote at least one more letter to those believers, those same believers, which will spend maybe the next month or so going through together Second Peter, which was written so that we don't ever forget what that identity is rooted in. And the message or the thrust of Second Peter is summed up perfectly for us in chapter 3, verse 2, where Peter says that in both of his letters to these believers, but more specifically his second letter, he is stirring them up by way of reminder that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of their Lord and Savior through the apostles. Translation, it is absolutely crucial that God's people never forget what the Scriptures teach. Believers don't need new things. We don't need new revelation. We don't need hot takes Some things don't need modernized. Some things just need solidified in our souls. That's what 2 Peter, a deeply sincere attempt by a shepherd to stir up fellow believers by way of reminder was written to do. Imprint the promises of God fulfilled in the gospel through Jesus Christ onto the very fiber of our souls so that we don't forget them. Peter was most likely still in Rome when he wrote this second letter, but now He's much closer to his martyrdom. We find that or see that implied maybe in chapter 1, verse 14, dating this letter probably sometime between 62 and 65 A.D., during which time Peter's going to be murdered by the emperor Nero for his faith. This letter is most likely written very close to that happening. False teachers were beginning to infiltrate the churches. As God promised us in his word, they would always do 
denying that Jesus was going to return, denying final judgment, driven not by the truth of God's word, but by their own desires. And Peter won't have it. So he writes not to say something new. Right? That's not the defense against false teaching. It's not to find something new. It's to hammer the same nail he always had into the door of their hearts. And so the elect exiles would be fruitful believers who gained entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ by deepening their knowledge of what he had accomplished for and granted to them in the gospel. So this morning, beloved, remembering what God has granted to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel is God's key to faithfulness and endurance. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Holy Word of God together? Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right for as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Our Father, Your Word is truth. Give me grace to proclaim it and give us all grace to hear and believe it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Notice the comfort and the confidence that Peter starts this letter with. The elect exiles spread throughout Asia Minor. They're not some kind of second-class Christians. There aren't levels, right? They have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles themselves. That's what Peter means here. How did they do that? How did, and in fact, how does anyone obtain faith at all? Don't miss this, because it's the foundation of the whole letter in verse 1. God's Holy Spirit didn't waste a single word when He inspired the writing of Scripture. This letter is written to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness 
of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice these things. Notice the tense of the verb here. Notice the preposition that follows it. The faith has been obtained. It's theirs. They have it. And what obtained it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Believer, did you know that the faith you have has been obtained for you? That when you believed upon Jesus for your salvation, there was something divine underneath you, actually, enabling you and causing you to do what you and I would never be able to do or want to do in our flesh. Our faith is obtained and kept, therefore, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So part of the righteousness, then, we need to understand this, that Jesus credits to our account is a will that believes in, embraces, and submits itself to God's call to sinners in the gospel. The will that Jesus had, that always believed the Father, is ours and is the means by which we have obtained saving faith. And the reason that's so beautiful, as the first sentence of this letter, is that it proclaims to us that we're not ultimately the ones holding on to what we have. We need to know that everything that threatens to undo us, everything, anything that threatens to undo us cannot ever prevail because what we have has been obtained for us and is held by Christ for us. Our strength, our will, our flesh are not ultimately on the line to do in this life what needs to be done. It will all come from grace or it will not come at all. So in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you this morning. There's a reason for that. It's not just a throwaway greeting with these nice Christian ideals, grace and peace. What is that? The vessel of grace and peace for our souls is the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace, notice that, are multiplied to us. They keep coming to us and they come to us in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace reside somewhere. They reside in the knowledge of God and His Son. So really the focus of Second Peter overall is on knowledge. What we know and how we know it. And I've noticed, if I've noticed anything in my time as a preacher, if I look back, I've noticed that, that more than anything else, most believers struggle to agree with God that we're completely forgiven, completely redeemed and justified by pure grace alone for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. I'm 43 years old. I've been a believer for most of my life, and that's the one thing I continue to struggle with in my own life, probably more than anything else, if I'm honest. This is why we desperately need to hear the gospel, the message of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, over and over and over and over and over again. But that's where the rub is in the church, right? We, we don't want that to be the focus. Because what, what's eventually going to happen? Well, yeah, grace, but what about good works? What about loving our neighbor? What about trying to be a good person? Right? What about virtue? These questions are important, and they're handled for us beautifully and clearly here at the outset of Second Peter. Look back down to verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through 
the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, Peter is telling us here that everything that has anything to do with life and godliness has been granted to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, through our knowledge of what He has done for us. It's all a gift, and we have it already. Believers are recipients of all the precious and very great promises of God. Those are summed up for us and fulfilled for us in the gospel. The biggest promise here being this, that God made us godly. God made us godly and connected us to Christ so intimately that we are called partakers of His divine nature. It doesn't mean we become God. It means we begin to drink in the knowledge of who God really is when God reveals Himself to us through His Word, who is Christ in the Gospel. We lack nothing. Before God, we are perfectly godly. When we ask our questions, where do we go for the answers? We're normally looking for somebody that said it in a new and exciting way. And has discovered a secret that nobody else has been able to find for 2,000 years. It's not how we answer our questions. We lack nothing. Before God, we're perfectly godly. We've escaped a world corrupted by our sinfulness by means of a sheer gift. So, when we're reading 2 Peter chapter 1 here, when we come out of verses 3 and 4, we should come out of them thinking, okay... The knowledge of God's promises to me in the gospel is how I partake of the divine nature while living in a sinful world. So what I need the most then is the knowledge of who the gospel tells me God is and what the gospel tells me God has done for me in Christ. Because Peter moves on to tell us now just how that is meant to affect us. We're always wondering, always wondering just how to be fruitful. How do we become effective Christians, And that's usually a godly desire. But the means by which we too often go about it are powerless because they're separated completely from the gospel. And they rely almost entirely on our will and our effort and our technique. But look at the text, verse 5. For this very reason. Now that's crucial. For this very reason, make every effort. To supplement. See, we start at make every effort. Right? That's what Christians should be doing. But but there's there's a clause before that that sets up the whole thing. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now These things can get confusing here, so we need to be very careful. For this very reason, in other words, think of what has preceded that. Because you've been given everything you need. You see that? That's what that means, for this very reason. Or, because you've been given everything you need. Because we've received already life, 
godliness, forgiveness, and salvation by grace through faith in the promises of God, we are now free to make every effort we can to supplement that faith with practical virtues. Since we're not on the hook to make ourselves right with God by our works, we are free to do all we want to in order to supplement this faith with virtues or with good works. Beloved, that's why the knowledge is so important and so powerful. Because when we read verses 5 through 7, in light of verses 1 through 4, we are meant to know that these virtues are not there to make us righteous before God. That's not what they do. They're not to prove that we're Christians. Jesus Christ has done that for us. Remember verse 1. We pursue good works for the good and love of our neighbors. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. You see how the gospel becomes the root of everything. Because God has given us everything, we stand now before Him in Christ in complete holiness. It's done. It's finished. Believer, you're safe. That's verse 1 again. We can turn our attention now because of that to those around us. Not to earn salvation, not to prove salvation, but to display salvation. That's why Peter's list starts with virtue and ends with love. If we're made virtuous by God as a gift, by way of a grant, that's the terms Peter has used. We are free to gift that love in virtuous ways to those around us. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just ineffective, unfruitful, stop. Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Peter mean by saying we'd be ineffective or unfruitful? He means... That if we stop believing the knowledge that God has given to us, specifically, if we don't believe we have been given everything we need for life and godliness, that that's been granted to us by God as a gift, we will be too busy with ourselves and making ourselves righteous through our works and our effort to ever do any actual good for our neighbors. We will be self-absorbed navel gazers that can't even see our neighbors much less love them like we love ourselves. That's the point of the text. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That's a revolutionary thing. The Bible teaches that the more you and I focus on getting better, the less likely it is that we will ever get better. That is not the focus of the believer. That's not the focus of the Christian. i got to do better. i got to be better. No, you need and I need to look to Christ to the knowledge God has given to us in His promises about Himself. It's by them that we partake of the divine nature. By hearing them, seeing them, believing them. Not by doing, not by working our way through virtue into a higher state of maturity and spirituality so that now we can partake of the divine nature. No, no, no. We partake of the divine nature by fixing our minds on what the promises reveal about the nature of God. It's all on Him. It's all on Him. And what has church been for so long in so many ways, in so many places? It's just a push to make everyone better, a concerted effort for everybody to get better. Instead, we should preach Christ crucified all the time. 
Jesus wasn't self-absorbed. Have you ever noticed that about him? He was concerned with his neighbor. It's what his life displayed. That's part of what it means to be like Jesus, isn't it? Knowing that your standing before God is unshakable makes you free to be an effectively fruitful, sinner-loving neighbor. Look at, look at the text, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Beloved, when you study the Word, study the flow of the author's thought. Alright? Study the connections. Get to know them. What is wrong when somebody is refusing to submit to the commands in verses 5-8? through eight? What's actually going on? They've stopped believing the Gospel. Look at that. What is the real reason Christians don't supplement their faith with love for their neighbor. What's the real reason for that? They're nearsighted to the point of blindness. Which means they can't take their eyes off of themselves. That's the only thing they can see. What's right in front of them in the mirror. They check for godliness and righteousness constantly within themselves because they refuse to believe they already have everything they need through God's promise. If, if, if you planted a field, if you planted a seed in a field to grow, and every 10 minutes you went and checked it to make sure it was okay, it will never grow. They check constantly for godliness and righteousness within themselves. That's what they think verse 10 means in a second. They forget that all their sins have already been washed away, far away in the past, right? Because they're nearsighted. And they keep trying to get God to accept them through how hard they try to do good. To be nearsighted in the context of Second Peter is to be unable to see the fact of what Christ has accomplished for you by forgiving you of your former sins, by washing them away and granting everything to you. It's to be obsessed with yourself and what is right in front of you and immediate and close your own performance. That's how we become ineffective people. We focus on being effective people. That's what the Bible teaches. We focus on ourselves. Beloved, that's the root of therefore in verse 10. All right? Verse 10 has a context. Normally we cough it up as like some type of um, you know, anti-venom to too much grace. Yeah, but you're supposed to confirm your cough. It has a context. Therefore. Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Therefore, kicks off verse 10, because our tendency is towards nearsightedness. Only looking at ourselves. It's because we struggle to believe the gospel is truly enough. We reject the knowledge that God has once and for all given to us in the only thing that has power for salvation, the gospel. Since our natural tendency is towards nearsightedness, therefore he tells us, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, which at the end of the day means your salvation in Jesus Christ. Make sure you confirm that he has done it and you don't have to. Be diligent to believe the gospel. Be diligent to remember it's all been gifted to you through promise as a grant. You're not on the hook for any of it. He does it all. You believe in Him and it's done. 
Beloved, the biggest struggle we face in our lives, it's not coming from the world. It's not coming from the culture. It's not coming from society. It's coming from inside and our own unwillingness to agree with Jesus when He said it is finished. That's where the fight is. Satan has us thinking the fight is against flesh and blood. It is not against flesh and blood. It's not out there. The biggest fight is in here. Jesus says it is finished. We say, ah, I don't know. Doesn't feel finished. Doesn't look finished. The lack of knowledge then of of the gospel, you see, the lack of knowledge is the central problem the church has to face for those who are a part of it. If, if you asked me, if you did, going into 2019 as the pastor of Moundsville Baptist Church, what's your primary concern? The biggest thing, God willing, it will be what it is January 1st, 2020. That every single person in this room believes the gospel more than anything else in the world. That's my goal for 2019. I know I have to write something out, but in essence, that's my annual report. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to write one. Satan has the Church of Jesus Christ absolutely consumed by temporal things that we think matter and don't matter that have nothing to do with the knowledge of God's promises in the gospel. To agree and believe that all we need for life and godliness is already ours is the primary thing we struggle to do. We've put the cart before the horse. We want to work our way into assurance and maturity and effectiveness and fruitfulness. And according to God's word, although the way One pastor puts this, the only way to get down to the business of loving our neighbors, of fulfilling the Great Commission, is to agree with God that our salvation is free. That's it, according to the Word of God. Then and only then, only then are we free enough to walk in the qualities He's prepared for us. God's Word is remarkable. Peter believes that agreeing with God that our salvation is done is precisely what moves our eyes from ourselves to our neighbor. And this keeps us from falling when, in fact, most of us probably have no time to truly love our neighbors because we're so busy trying to justify ourselves by our work. We don't burn out necessarily in our work or get tired of doing work because there's so much work that actually has to get done. We, we burn out and we get tired of it as we get older because we haven't been doing it because Jesus has satisfied our souls. We're doing it because it's the means. Work is the means by which we think we prove our salvation. Just, that's what sets us against each other. Why aren't you as passionate about this thing to get done as I am about this thing to get done? You know, it, it, that thinking has to stop or the church will continue forever as long as we are here on the earth through the same cycle of excitement, passion, everybody wants in, then busyness, 
then frustration, then decline, then burnout, then something that will rouse everybody again and get them excited and make them make promises they can't keep because those feel better to us. This time I'm really going to do it. This time I'm really going to get serious about my faith. Do you know what you're looking to when you do that? You. And there is zero power in you to become a better person. All the world hates that. That's what they hate. The gospel says, no, you can't. And the whole anthem of the world is, yes, I can. I can do anything I want. I can be anything I want to be. The gospel says, yeah, no. No. Right? This is what they hate. They hate Jesus because Jesus is a testimony to the world that the best you can do is never good enough for God. Ever. And we find our identity in what we do to make ourselves feel worthy. Look, only Christ is worthy. You can, that burden can be taken away. Do you understand that? Don't work so you can rest. Work from rest. Jesus is the only back in the cosmos wide enough to carry the weight of the world and carry the weight of the church on it. The surest way to fall into ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness is to be nearsighted. It's to be self-focused and doubt that we've been truly cleansed from our sins. And the surest way to stand is to confirm in our souls what God has promised to us in Christ. Confess that our sins are forgiven. Forget about ourselves and love those around us. Beloved, nothing is harder than agreeing with God. It's always been the hardest thing for human beings to do from the very beginning. That is precisely why Second Peter is about reminders and recollections. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again, but a gospel as the Bible teaches it. A gospel with no ifs, ands, or buts, or howevers. But a gospel so radical in its content. See, radical is not about you and I. Radical is about what Jesus is. A gospel so radical it can even adjust our nearsighted eyes to see a world, a town full of neighbors. God has put us here to love For in this way, verse 11, for in this way, by way here contextually of reminder and recollection of the promises of God in the gospel, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at how this section closes here in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. For believers, whether or not we need to hear the gospel is not based on whether or not we already know it. Our need to hear the gospel over and over again is based on the fact that it is the very means God has established to make us fruitful and to make us endure. Right? We only do that with the gospel. And I already know it. You know that you need oxygen. That doesn't keep you from breathing. Right? We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. Verse 13, I think it right 
as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. You see that? Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter is recalling his conversation with our Lord Jesus in John 21, 18 and 19. Peter, the day is coming when people will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Peter knows that day is close. Peter was a man like you and I. He knows his time is short. He, he knows. And so what's on his mind? I have to remind the people under my influence of what they already know. 15, and I will make every effort. That's what Peter will do. Right? He's sitting in prison. <laughs> I will make every effort so that after my departure, his death, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter won't make every effort to figure out what is trendy and fresh and new. He will not dedicate himself to being original. His effort is not so we would be able to learn new things, but so we would always be able to remember the old things, the first things, Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the goal of Peter's letter here. And in chapter 3, verse 2, Peter wanted to minister in such a way so that when he was gone, they would always be able to recall the things he had taught them, that they would never forget what they already knew. Remembering what God has granted to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel is God's key to fruitfulness and endurance. The necessity for the church, the necessity, the necessity for Moundsville Baptist Church this year is to remember the promises of God in the gospel. There will be a million things this year, beloved, that vie for our attention and our effort and our time and our concern. It doesn't make other things worthless and pointless, but it does put other things in their proper perspective. And the adversary has always done a phenomenal job of making the church think that the fight is in the little things. It's not. The fight has always been, is right now, and will always be whether or not we will remember what saved us. You see, when we do that, there won't be time for nonsense. That's God's way. That's God's method for the new year. This letter is meant to remind believers throughout the ages, right, that to know these things is what it truly means to know God. The things in His Word. Beloved, we can't move on from the Gospel. We can't do it. There's no adding to it. There's no building on it. There's no leaving it. It's everything. It's where God is finally and fully revealed. And we need more knowledge of it as we get older, not less. Don't worry about how it is that you get more knowledge of something you already know. Beloved, Tony, keep listening to it. Just keep listening to it. And it'll do its work. Just keep listening. The gospel is the means of salvation for everyone in this room this morning. From the youngest of us to the oldest. 
if you will call out to Jesus to save you and forgive you of your sins, believing that this is what he died to accomplish and then rose again to give to you, you will be saved. And we will stay saved the exact same way. Grace. Grace. June is going to come. If you'd like to come and pray here at the front, either to believe on Jesus Christ or to tell us that you have believed on Jesus Christ, or if you desire to become a member of our church, you are more than welcome to come forward this morning during this time of invitation. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for the promises you've made to us because they're all yes and kept in your son Jesus Christ. Lord, our work is to believe the one you sent to do the work for us. Your son died to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sins and to make us righteous and perfect and presentable to you by bringing us by your spirit into himself. And so, Lord, let every believer know this morning where they stand. Let every unbeliever know this morning where they stand separated from you, but also how they might come this morning or believe this morning and have this remedied by your son. Lord, help us believe. Help us remember. Help us recall. This I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.